we're about there. So we'll go ahead and get started. So just a couple of housekeeping things if you're you're sitting. So there's technically since last week, there are four handouts. So the first handout was the introductory handout. That's this one. It says on the top, the books of the Kings. Right? That's the first one. The second one was kind of like your scorecard of the Kings with the thumbs up, the thumbs sideways, and the thumbs down, right? That's what I gave you last week. Now that we're actually in the books proper, um, I gave you an outline of Samuel itself. This is adapted from the Lutheran Study Bible. That's this this one here. Ralph has this. It's also very similar. If you have the other one from the 80s, that's this one. It's fine. Also, it's the same. It's roughly the same outline. So Lutheran Study Bible or the Concordia Self-Study Bible, it's roughly following their outline. It also follows... Our big, huge Concordia commentary that Pastor Dinger has that I'm using, okay? Um, so it's huge, and it's roughly the same outline in here as well. So it's pretty much universally recognized, these kind of sections. And so as we organize this text literarily, and I'm going to show you a brief video on this, on how we can look at this as a literary thing. I'll see how the audio works. It may or may not work right away, and I'm going to have to play with it because I'm using like three different devices simultaneously. So sometimes it takes a second to figure that out. So I appreciate your indulgence when we get there. So that same outline is found there. So that's for the whole book of Samuel. So we'll, you can refer to this. This, and If you're gone, for example, or if you're missing time, we're going to follow this mostly like verbatim, like straight down in terms of sections. So today we're going to be in section one, the birth of Samuel and the religious environment. So for Samuel one through three, we're basically going through those three chapters today. That's, that's our idea, which means next week we'll be in number two. Uh, section two, which is roughly four through seven. And so we're going to keep going through these about two or three chapters and following the sections that are in this outline. So today's outline is the one that on the top says, first Samuel one through three, Israel without a king part one. That's where we're at right now. Okay. So that's this outline that's specific to today's class. So you have lots of paper. I like giving, it's part of it. So I'm a teacher by habit. And so I give you things. Okay. And that way you have all the material. And then a kid can't say, this is again, habits, force of habit. Well, you never told me what that was. I gave you the notes, gave it to you. <laughs> so I can do, you know, and so it's plausible deniability. And I can tell parents, like say, hey, look I tell them, hey, look, look at this stack. See this? I gave every single one of them this and I told them they're responsible for it. And then if they come to parent-teacher conference, it's like, hey, look at this stack. And they're like, okay. So it's, it's, it's so part of its force of habit. I'm kind of, you know, that's, that's just why I do that. But also it's always helpful to have that visual, right? And then the nice thing about these is you can also write your own notes or underline things or whatever, um, in addition to being in the text. So this will follow that. I didn't print the Bible text for you here. It will be displayed on the screen for the people that are watching online and for the recording. So if you don't have your Bible, it will show up on the screen. But if you want to have your Bible in front of you also, that's fine. There's a stack of those in the back. Um, as we go. So we'll be in 1 Samuel 1 through 3. Let's uh, go ahead and pray to start us off. Lord God in heaven, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the books that we see in what we now call the Old Testament, and where we see you unfold salvation history, where we see the promises that you're giving to your people, which eventually come down to us and culminate in Christ. So help us, Lord, to be students of your word, to be open to what it's teaching us, and also to see how it points to your son. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so First Samuel uh, one through one one through three is kind of an interesting thing. So I want to show you just a resource, and I, with a with a thousand qualifications because we're we're Lutherans, and so I got to kind of I'm going to escape this here really quick. I'm going to stop the screen share for a second just so I can show you this. Um, there's a video that comes from uh, a group called the Bible Project. I do not recommend them for theology. Where I recommend them is as the Bible as literary outline if that makes any sense. So in other words, do not get your doctrine of baptism from the Bible Project. 
Okay, do not get your doctrine of Holy Communion or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of justification from the Bible Project. You following me? This is not a theological resource. This is when they run afoul. Where they're really, really good is the Bible as literature. How, how do we look at the text and how do we see this kind of outline kind of unfold throughout salvation history, if that makes any sense? That's the thing that's important for me as we kind of look at this. So as we look at this, this is First Samuel. I'm not going to watch We're not going to watch the whole thing. Holding seven minutes long and I wouldn't have much of a class. But I want to show you kind of how they kind of show this and zoom in on these first chapters that we're going to study. So forgive me. Like I said, I'm using three devices. It may take a second for me to get the sound exactly what it's supposed to be. Let's see if it works right away here. Okay, here we go. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, they're two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of 1st Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the Promised Land. And there Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters. The prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, and then King Saul, and after that King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter two. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes... Okay, so that's kind of what we're going to focus in on those chapters one through three. So again, why I like the Bible Project is as a literary um, thing, if that makes any sense. I'm going to share my screen again here, and we're going to look through how this kind of unfolds um, in the book of First uh, Samuel. So let me see from current slide. There we go. Okay, so let's look at the text itself. I'm going to show you some artwork here first. First, that, that artwork you see there, that is Hannah presenting Samuel to Eli at the tabernacle at Shiloh. Okay, and that's by Benjamin West. He's an American painter, actually, from the 1800s, but he was trained in Europe, and he's known for his big landscapes, but he also did biblical scenes. 
And sometimes you'll see these in like storybook Bibles or when you watch things online or whatever. And so this is actually Benjamin West and it's Hannah presenting Samuel at the temple. So that's going to be our main focus here. So let's look at the text itself of 1 Samuel. Let's actually look at this. We're in the Bible now. You know, I'm doing all this intro. We're actually in the text. So let's read this together a little bit. I'll show this on the screen. If you want to follow along, this is from the uh, ESV. This is 1 Samuel. And I'll just keep going on the text here. There was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah and his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So I'm going to stop there for a second. If you have your outline, I want to kind of uh, point you into this a little bit. There's a few things that we want to look at in this text. So this is this, this outline here. You, of course, can just hear what I'm saying about this. The first thing we could see in this text, I'm going to go back for you here, is this lineage is important because it establishes Samuel and his family as Levites. Okay, so if you look, if you go into all the history of this, this is the priestly caste or the priestly family. So of all the tribes of, of Israel, the heritage of Levi, you, we get the census of Israel. They're not given any land because their heritage is God himself. Their heritage as descendants of Aaron and Eleazar the priest is to actually run the tabernacle and do the sacrifices and to, um, to be the priests of God. And so that was their inheritance. And so this means that Samuel is in this priestly caste. This matters because the priestly caste is failing. And we're going to run into that a little bit, especially in chapter two. But this gives you some uh, some context. So this connects you to both Moses and Aaron, who are Levites themselves. And so Samuel is in that lineage as a priest of God just by birth in that sense. OK, um, we're also introduced to the two wives here. And there's some interesting parallels scripturally with these two when it comes to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. <laughs> Elkanah seems to be pious. He's going every year. He's fulfilling his duties as a priest. Um, Hannah, they're in the temple. They're they're receiving and, and actually uh, uh, committing the sacrifices. Everything looks good except for this idea of children. Now, most of you probably already know this, but this was a grievous dishonor for most women in this culture, which is why Penina, rival wives here, is um, going after her on this and kind of lording it over her. And it's grievously afflicting her, not only just because she wants a kid, but also because it, she was felt like she was being dishonored. And this is an honor-shame culture. So it's important that we kind of understand this. Um, so again, very pious uh, family. Elkanah, by the way, as you saw this, seems to have a hard time understanding um, what this means. Uh, polygamy in the Old Testament is never endorsed. Every time we see it, it's condemned. It's not really condemned, but it's shown to have very negative results. 
So if you think of the rival wives in Genesis, right? Rachel and Leah would be a great example of this. Or you see Abram when he is given a concubine, Sarai or Sarah's servant, Hagar. That creates a rival. And so Hagar sent out, right? And so, and you see what happens to Solomon later on when he has all his wives and concubines and how it turns his heart away from God. And so every time this is shown in the Old Testament, polygamy is condemned by how it works its way out. In fact, for those of you who are interested, I can see if I can run something on it in this Concordia um, commentary. There's a whole excursus on that issue because David has multiple wives too, as we, as we get it run into him. It is never condemned completely because in the Old Testament, it talks about if there is polygamy, this is what you do. But that's case law. That doesn't mean go do this thing. It means if this should happen, this is what you, you get what I'm saying. So it's not the same thing. But polygamy is always condemned. Why do I bring this up right now? Well, because Elkanah has kids. He doesn't feel the pangs that Hannah feels because he's got his own kids already through his other wife. And then he makes this comment that is, just makes me laugh. So I read this to my high school kids because I was working on this during my prep and they saw it was up and stuff. And they thought it was funny. It just makes me laugh. That comment, am I not more worth you to, than 10 sons? I mean, I'm better than 10 sons, aren't I? You know, it's kind of like arrogance. But his point, 10 sons is a huge number. And the idea here is he's saying, you know, if you've got me and you've got this family, you've got everything you ever need, why are you upset? You're blessed. And he's probably somebody of some means um, and because he can provide for two wives. And they're able to go and journey and uh, do all the sacrifices. So he's not a poor dude. So he's like, look, you got me. You got some money. What are you, what are you unhappy about? Right. And he doesn't get it. He's not able to relate to her. And so the commentaries that I've read on this will say one of the reasons he doesn't relate to her is because he doesn't feel the same thing she feels because he's married to two different people. They're not united in the same way that God intends. And so that's another example. Huh? If they don't like polygamy, what about all the concubines? So the concubine, so a concubine means a lesser status. It's a lesser wife. And so it's still polygamy, just of a different sort. Oh. So it's like you rank wives, that sort of thing. And so a concubine, if like Solomon has like a thousand concubines or whatever the number is. And so when we get to Solomon, those are lesser wives. Almost certainly in Solomon's case, those are political <laughs> arrangements. Um, and that sort of thing, but they're lesser wives. So they kind of ranked themselves, if that makes sense. Even with Abraham and Hagar. When Hagar becomes Abraham's concubine, she's of a lesser status. That's one of the reasons Sarah's angry, because Hagar starts kind of saying, ha ha, I have kids and you don't. Right. And Sarah's like, hey, this this she doesn't know her place. It's a very rigid social structure in this sort of thing. And so it's interesting in this passage because there's two wives. Penina is technically listed first when it comes to kids, but Hannah's the favored wife. It's interesting. So you even see that tension in the text itself. Okay. And so again, this happens for some time. It says year after year, if you look, look, look at that, right? If you go back to the text, right? Her rival used to provoke her grievously. And so it went year by year. This wasn't just a one-time occurrence. This happens over and over and over again. And Hannah is bearing this burden, so to speak, and bearing this abuse from her rival um, in this family. So there's some family dysfunction. Now, Elkanah is never portrayed negatively. He's portrayed as a little aloof with the comment that he makes. But he's not portrayed as if like it's all his fault or that he's, you know, intentionally be, uh, being a bad person. In fact, later on, he's actually kind of lifted up as, again, pious because he's going every year. Um, he actually confirms her vow before God and other things. So Elkanah is not necessarily a bad guy, but the, the polygamy itself leads to dysfunction because you have this, this rivalry that's going on. Um, all this takes place at Shiloh, by the way, and that matters because Shiloh is where the tabernacle of God is. So these meals that are going on are sacrificial meals because they would actually eat of the sacrifice. And that matters, by the way, 
eating of the sacrifice, that's a type, right? It's a type for what we get with Holy Communion. We literally eat of the sacrifice. Now, we don't do it in a cannibalistic way, of course, but when we eat uh, Jesus's body and blood in Holy Communion, in which he's in with and under the elements, we are participating in that sacrifice. So there's a connection to the system here when you actually participated. It wasn't you just burned it and left. You gave God the choice portions. That matters later, by the way, because of Eli's sons. You gave God the choice portions, and then you distributed it. You ate it. So the priest got some, and your family got some. And meat was rare back then, so that's why this was kind of a once-a-year sort of thing, right? And so that matters as this unfolds. So just keep those things in mind as, as we move forward. So let's keep the text going here, okay? First Samuel 1, 11 through 13. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Okay, so let's go to, through this passage here um, with Hannah and Eli. There's a few things to kind of point out. Eli, in this case, is sitting in a seat. Most people in this culture sat on the floor. Okay, so they would sit in the dirt and they'd get dirty and they'd kind of just sit around. You still see this in the Middle East. Like they sit in the tents and they're all kind of on rugs. Even when they have meals, they recline right on their sides. They're not sitting at a table. That's rare to sit at tables, probably because it's semi-nomadic, but also because it was expensive. And so to have an actual seat to be seated there means he's, sit, he's seating like he's kind of a king of sorts. In this case, the king of the tabernacle. Now, of course, that's ultimately God, but he's the one that's kind of running this whole show because he's the priest that's actually on duty here. Um, and so he's sitting in a seat of authority. And in fact, we run, a lot of the time we run into Eli, he's sitting in a seat. That's probably because he's old. So not only is he in a position of authority, but he starts to go blind as the story goes on, just, just so we know. So it's partly because it's authority, but partly because he needs to sit down. Um, so it's just kind of... Also because he's heavy. Yeah, yeah. Although not as not as heavy as you would as you would think, but yes, a little bit. Because yeah, he's going to break his neck later. Yeah, falling out of his chair. So yeah, we'll get to that. All right. Next, uh, by giving her a future God, a future child, some things to say in her prayer. She's promising to God that he will become a Nazarite. There's some passages in the Old Testament. Um, Samson's a great example of somebody else who's supposed to be a Nazarite, a Nazarite where no razor is going to touch the head. Samuel is going to be better than Samson because Samson, of course, abuses his vows. He, you know, gets uh, he falls in with wrong women and he's just kind of a macho man and it fails. I mean, God uses him at the end of his life when he dies, but he ultimately fails as a judge. And so Samuel is a prophet, but he's also in some ways the last judge. 
And so we're transitioning from the book of Judges into the books of the Kings with this figure. Samuel's kind of the last judge of Israel and the first of kind of the prophets during the times of the Kings. He's a transitionary figure that we see here as a, um, as a Nazarite. Okay. Uh, the other thing about this is Eli here, as you read through this story, it's an interesting character. As you read about Eli, Eli's not really portrayed as evil. He's portrayed as weak. He goes about his duties like he's supposed to. He's kind to Hannah, ultimately. He's kind to Samuel. He's not necessarily a kind of, quote unquote, an evil character. He's weak, and he his big kind of indictment in the text is he's a bad leader. And we'll see that with his sons. He's not a good father and a leader. He may be faithful in his service. And so if you had to do this, that that chart, it's like thumbs up, thumbs sideways, thumbs down. He's a thumbs sideways. It's kind of like Eli. If you want to think that way, if it's if I like I have fun doing that. Well, what's really cool about this, and this is a connection that you kind of may have gathered, is when Eli says this phrase, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. The language here is very similar to the ironic blessing that we hear every day in church services. So when may the Lord bless you and keep you, may the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. When he says this, go in peace, it's almost certainly in the context of the blessing of the people. Notice her response. She actually views this as a word from God himself. Right? She says, the woman went her way and ate, and the face, her face was no longer sad. So when Eli speaks and blesses her petition, she honestly has faith that this is as if God himself is speaking to us. This connects to us today. Do you know what we teach about confession and absolution in our church? That when the pastor says, in, by the, in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I announce unto you the forgiveness of all your sins, we are to believe that that's coming from Christ himself. It's not, it's not Jonathan Dinger or Chris Simmons or anything else that's going on. It's as if Christ himself was saying, I forgive you. The same thing is true in private. So this has not changed since the Old Testament. The office has changed and how we do it has changed and the circumstances have changed. But God is very consistent that he raises up sacraments, right? Sacramental theology, means of grace. In this case, the word of God being spoken to you by his minister. So when Eli says this, he says, go in peace. And Hannah believes this. It's no different than when we say go in peace. And you know, it's not Am I really forgiven? Do I feel forgiven? No, you know you are forgiven when that is spoken to you. It's as if Christ himself has said that to you. So there's a connection here between that and what we currently do today. John 20 is a really great example of that when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound on earth and whatever you forgive is forgiven in heaven. Remember that passage? He's saying it to his disciples. By the way, a lot of our fellow evangelicals and Protestants do not know what that passage means. They have a hard time with the office of the keys. I asked my dad, my dad's a longtime elder, and he can watch this because we've had this conversation numerous times. He's a longtime elder and member of a missionary alliance church. That's what I was raised in. And I asked him, what does your church teach about this? And he's like, I have no idea. And he's like, we've never even had a sermon. On, well, I've never even heard this in a Bible study or something. I was like, but how do you, I mean, this is the office of the keys. Who does this? Is it the pastor? Is it the congregation? Like who has these offices of the keys? He had, they had no doctrine of the office of the keys. No doctrine at all. They have no systematic. So, I mean, but we do have this doctrine, the office of the keys. And it's a source of comfort for us because when God raises up ministers and when the gifts of God belong to the people of God and you are given that absolution, it's as if God himself is giving it to you. Hannah receives this word from God in the same way. Yes, go for it. Yeah, 
Do we under, do we share that understanding with any of the other Trinitarian faiths? Um, really, yeah. I mean, so obviously Roman Catholics have the Office of the Keys, but but for us, so the main distinction there is for us the the Office of the Keys belongs to the people of God. To them, it belongs to the apostles and those who are in apostolic succession. So in other words, the Pope, the bishops, the priests—they're the only ones that have that. We believe that the the keys are given to the entire church, and that the pastor exercises that on behalf of the congregation. So that's a, that's a big difference. So you don't have to have like this priestly lineage that takes you all the way back to the apostles. You just simply have to be called, rightly ordered, right? And that sort of thing within the church. And then therefore, you, by the virtue of that office, you have the office of the keys. So the office of the public ministry is not some sort of inherent thing that is passed down by the bishops or something. It's instead because the people of God ask pastors to do that on their behalf. That's kind of the main difference. But Roman Catholics have this. Eastern Orthodox have this. The Anglican tradition has this. Um, some Reformed traditions recognize it, but they don't do it in the same way that we do. Uh, but definitely you're more sacramental Christians who believe something's going on in baptism and in communion and other things. They're the ones that are going to emphasize this because we believe in the means of grace. And in this case, the word of God being spoken um, to the people. And so, no, that's a great, great question. Great clarification. Comparative denomination. I have to do that all the time. I got Roman Catholics and Baptists and others in my class. So I have to do this all the time. But that's a, that's a great that's a great question, though. So there's a connection for you already from the Old Testament to the New Testament that Hannah obviously believes that this is a word from God spoken through the minister of God, in this case, Eli at the temple. OK, Samuel, by the way, when we get there, is going to be named God heard of the name of God. So Hannah asks and God graciously answers. And so let's look at this as this, this continues. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So that's so again, that's what that name means. I'm sorry, the outline's a little confusing there because I keep going. It says 19 to 118. And I it should say 119 to 120 something, 27. So just that's a mistake on mine. If you want to add that, that's the whole outline there. That's my that's my fault. It also continues. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Almost all estimates here have him at about three years old. That's almost all, like all the church fathers... Uh, Jewish commentators, they almost all have him at three years old here, okay? Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I pray, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. That's how this chapter ends. Pretty, pretty amazing. Because right after this, we're going to get the song of song of Hannah. And so a, a couple of comments on this. Who's worshiping God? It says, and he worshiped the Lord there. We actually think that's probably Samuel. So this is this is a remarkable child. So this is somebody at three years old who's brought to the temple and he starts worshiping God immediately. This should, by the way, remind you again, typology of John the Baptist a little bit who leaps in the womb in the presence of his Savior, who is uh, filled with God's Spirit. Something's going on here um, with Samuel. He's uniquely called by the God. God has called him from birth to be his minister. It's pretty impressive because that he there, the closest subject there, if you're somebody who likes grammar or English or literature, it's Samuel. That's worshiping God at three years old. 
pretty cool to actually see how that works. A couple of other comments here is Elkanah. This is where Elkanah actually comes off as good here. He confirms a vow. Um, in the Old Testament, a husband could actually rescind a, a, a vow his wife makes. He had that authority to rescind a vow. He never rescinds the vow and actually participates in it. So again, his character is not necessarily negative in this, other than he's in a marriage that probably shouldn't have happened with the, with the polygamy. Um, he probably got married twice just because Hannah wasn't having kids. She's the she's almost certainly the first wife, and so that's why. Go ahead. What was the process for getting married at that time? So was it a, a, more of a vow, or was it an official marriage? Yeah, it was a community event. They had a ceremony, right? And even current Jews kind of do that still with the with the canopy, right? And putting the guy, the groom on a chair and stuff, stuff, stuff like that. Almost certainly it was a community thing and you would have had um, your local community leaders or if you had a rabbi present, they didn't call him rabbi back then or a priest or something. But yes, it was a community event. And yes, they would swear vows to each other. Assuming it would be acceptable to do that a second time. Yeah, this this in, in the ancient Near East at this time, polygamy is common. Right. In all the surrounding cultures. No, that's a great that's a great, great question, especially when you had somebody who was barren. Because passing on your family name and having male descendants was like a huge, huge thing because you wanted your lame to live on. And so you wanted male descendants. And so if your wife can't have kids, that actually was dishonorable to not have other kids. And so the community would say, well, you know, she's she's had several years. There's no children. If he wants to marry again, he could provide for her. Let's let's celebrate that, too. You know, what I mean, they would kind of get together because the survival This is a tribal culture, right? This is not the king culture yet. And in tribal cultures, having lots of kids and propagating and, and moving the culture forward is a big deal. And so almost certainly they would go along with it because it was having more kids. Everybody wanted more kids. By the way, this should show you about a culture change here. Having lots of kids is valuable. In our culture, having lots of kids, people think you're either in our LDS community or you're traditional Roman Catholic or that you're like somehow ignorant of having the joys of life if you have lots of kids. I mean, it's weird. I mean, we are in an odd culture. This is a culture that values having lots of children. The more children that you had, the more blessed you were. Okay. Now people say, oh, man, that's so expensive. And I don't know about my career. And I see the difference. It's just a completely different mindset. It's hard for us to kind of uh, grasp that. But having 10 kids, when he says that earlier, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? 10 sons would have been awesome. Now we say 10 sons are like, you don't, have, you don't, you know, you don't have to do that, right? You know, he's, I mean, that's how it's weird. Do you see the mindset difference though? It's it's a completely different thing. Go ahead. They were also very tribal and they needed to be sons to for the future armies mm -hmm. to uh, do the go very well. Oh, yeah, you need everything. Yeah, shepherding, farming military and again it was an honor thing because the more sons you have the more your name spreads throughout right and the more of a legacy it's about your honored legacy is, is what that is to have lots of kids and so again the old testament never seems to say that having lots of kids is bad ever okay so it's just just a point i wanted to kind of make up there okay and so by the way uh this last part where she says i'm the one this, the lord has granted me my petition the language there is very similar to the blessing that eli gave to her earlier so it's kind of a drama effect you know she shows up and she's and he's like well the lord grant this and then she shows up i'm the woman remember me you know and the lord has granted what you what you said he confirmed his word uh through you you got to wonder if eli realizes this or if it's like i you know if he's just overwhelmed by this you don't really know we don't get much in terms of you know the internal psychology of these characters because that wasn't important at this time but it would be interesting oh yeah i blessed this woman and i did what i was supposed to do as a priest and then she came back and she's rejoicing it's like wow god must have really been doing something because it wasn't me <laughs> right god was using me ask any pastor about that by the way 
right? Ask any pastor. It's not me that's doing this. God's using me right now, but it's it's not me. It's the word of God that's doing this stuff. It's pretty cool. All right. So, and then we get this famous prayer from Hannah. And this prayer has a lot, and actually it's really a poem or a song. This is number three, by the way, if you want to flip your sheet over here, has numerous parallels in the New Testament. And in particular, there's two parallels that I want to draw your attention to. That's the song of Mary, the Magnificat in Luke 1, right? And the song of Zechariah in Luke 1, which is called the Benedictus in Latin. So the Magnificat and the Benedictus. We're going to look at Hannah's. And then if you have your Bibles, I'm going to kind of just direct you to it. We're going to look through these things in just a second. But 1 Samuel 2 is where we have Hannah's song. My halt, my heart, my halt, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him his actions are weighed. The bows, of the, sorry, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on the strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. That line in particular should sound like Mary's prayer, right? The poor is filled with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Recognize that? Very similar, okay? The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that one, I'm going to slow down right here. All of a sudden this escalates. Did you notice how the prayer gets like bigger and bigger and broader and broader? First it seems more immediate. It's rejoicing in God. It seems more personal. She's talking about how God gives seven, you know, seven kids to the barren. It's talking about how, you know, she can rejoice because there's been triumph over enemies and all these other different things. And then all of a sudden, starting in about verse eight, notice it becomes eschatological. We're talking about the pillars of the earth. This isn't just Israel now. This is just Hannah now. This is her. We think she may be inspired of the Holy Spirit at this point, right? Because this is scripture. And something's going on here in this last passage. Okay. So some points that I want to uh, draw out here. Okay. First off, this word anointed that you see here in your text, that is Meshiach in Hebrew, which is Christos in Greek. Okay. This is Messiah talk. So right at the end of her prayer, look what she says. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. By the way, when she prays this, is there a king yet? No. Isn't that interesting? Just something to point out. How is she rejoicing about a king if there is no king? Unless she's getting moved by God to realize that ultimately there is a king that's going to solve all these problems, right? Give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And in this case, the Lord is judging the ends of the earth, not just Israel, not just enemies, not just a temporal time, but the entire earth is being judged through this anointed king. So this promise is early. 
This is the first time in the Old Testament in a title way or in a uh, as in a like a proper noun or a proper title. This is the first time in the Old Testament we see this word Messiah like this. In all the Old Testament. We have promises earlier. Yes, go for it. Yeah, I can talk about that horn because she says at the beginning too, right? So if you look, so like if you go back to the beginning, so that's actually a good point. If I was going to draw that up, but let's go to the beginning. She even says that. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord, right? The horn is a symbol. So if you think like a bull's horn, right? Or the the altar, the the uh, the um, the altar, and also the tabernacle and that sort of thing. The altar had horns. You could grasp the horns of the altar for refuge. It's a symbol of divine power. It's a symbol of authority. So, uh, the horn of something is is your strength. The horn of something represents your power. And so in her case, how is her power? How is her honor raised in God? That's how she's raised up. And in God's case, at the end here, this horn idea, I'll try to bring some pictures next time to show you this when we talk more about this, but right here, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That means that Christ, this future Messiah is going to be exalted, what we would say by God, the father, he's going to be lifted up. So his power and his authority is going to come from God himself. And of course, Jesus is also fully God. So there's some Trinitarian implications here that are kind of hidden in this. But this is the idea of authority and power and honor and strength. It's an odd, you're right, it's an odd phrase. We're kind of, we don't really talk that way anymore. But think of the terms of like a big bull with huge horns. That's like, it's a symbol of its power and authority. So they would put horns on like thorn, uh, on thrones. So if you see thrones that have horns like on the back or on the armrests, see what I mean? That's symbols of authority. So great, great question. Any other questions about that? I'm, I'm worried. We still got five, 10 minutes. I'm doing good. I just want to uh, point out a couple other things. You have this on uh, under the Hannah song. It says letter Q. Notice this also contains both law and gospel right here, right? It's, I think it's right there. Yeah. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings them to Sheol and he raises up. This is law and gospel right? God kills. How does he kill? Well, he can kill us with the power of his law if he really wants to, right? We call that the second use of the law. Here's how broken you are. Here's how needy you are. Here's the standard, which is moral and ethical perfection. Here's how you measure up. The law kills in that sense. That's very Pauline to say that. But God also brings to life with the power of the gospel. He renews us. He sends us his Holy Spirit, right? We deserve death. We deserve the grave, Sheol, and we eventually all will go to Sheol, the place of the dead. And then yet, we all be raised up because we are baptized into Christ. And so this is ultimately fulfilled, of course, in the life of the church and with Christ. So the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings us to shield. He raises up. God's in charge and we are not. <laughs> it's kind of the message there. And there is law and gospel there. The law part, God's in charge and we're breaking his rules. Why doesn't he just break us? Because he would have every right and would be just in doing so. And yet he is also a God of grace and mercy and love because he doesn't do so and instead finds us a way out. So we see this law and gospel uh, dialectic here in the prayer of, uh, of Hannah. And so it's interesting how this kind of plays out. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you want the references, you have this here. So Hannah's song, if you connect this, if you just want to, even in your notes, and I put the references, Luke 1, the songs of Mary and the song of, of Zechariah are pretty interesting because almost certainly, Almost certainly they have Hannah's song kind of in their mind because these people were steeped in scripture. They knew scripture. They heard it constantly, especially the Levites. I mean, they knew God's word, right? And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are also in the priestly family, and they're older. Don't you think Zechariah had heard Hannah's prayer a few times? 
Don't you think Elizabeth heard it? Don't you think Mary heard it? Don't you think uh, there's numerous people that are around them had heard this prayer before, this, this song of Hannah? The answer is yes. And so because of that, we should not be shocked that in Luke 1, we see similar things, right? And so if you look at this, for example, Zechariah's prophecy mentioned the horn thing. This is what Zechariah says, Luke 1, 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's probably not accidental language. That's a, di a direct reference to the sort of language you're seeing here in 1 Samuel, right? Or when Mary sings, right? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. You see these, 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 uh, this great reversal that Hannah has in hers as well. Very similar in Mary's prayer. So you can really do, if you really want to do kind of a fun study, it's not the purpose of this class necessarily, but look at Hannah's prayer and then read Luke 1 and compare those two. It's, it's obvious that God in his, in his grace and in his mercy is fulfilling Hannah's ultimate ends in the person and work of Christ and also to a lesser extent in John the Baptist. It's being fulfilled there. So it's cool. So if you don't do that, if you want to do your own little personal study there, I would commend that to you. All right, we got to end on this stuff and then I'll leave some time for questions. So I want to discuss stuff here. Okay, so let's go ahead. That's her prayer. Okay, wait, I just mentioned this. Okay, so this is uh, stained glass of Zechariah receiving uh, Samuel into his service. Just to kind of give you another visual there. It's kind of a neat way of looking at that. All right, now here's the contrast with Samuel. So remember, Samuel is praying and worshiping at three years old. Now here's the actual priest. So Eli's sons, these are the people, remember Eli's old. So his sons are often involved with the day-to-day -day operations, right? And so listen to what his sons are doing. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Wouldn't that be a nice legacy in, in scripture? <laughs> That's your reputation. You're the worthless, okay? They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Okay, so to give you an idea of what's going on, uh, remember, they ate of the sacrifices. These two guys who are, quote unquote, worthless men, are not content with getting their portion. Instead, they want the choicest cuts. They want the best stuff and they want the best stuff so badly, they'll take it raw and cook it themselves to make sure they get the best stuff. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the fat, which was extremely valuable because a lot of people did not get fat in their diet. You get sick because you didn't have enough. It's also why olive oil is so valuable in this culture, by the way. There's not enough fat. So for the priests to do this, this is not only disrespecting God and his sacrifices. It means they don't give a rip about the people that they're serving either. They're not making they're they're making they're they are saying we will take this portion by force if you don't just give it to us. That's, I mean, it's pretty blatant that they're abusing the system. They're, they're working the system. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. 
a boy clothed with a linen ephod. So he had like a little priestly garment at his size. It's kind of an interesting visual. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him every year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And so it's cool. Hannah doesn't, it's not like Hannah never gets to see her son again. She's making him close, right? She gets to mother him a little bit, even if it's at a distance at times, she still gets to see her son. And so they return to their home. Check this out. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So her she's blessed. God in his due time blesses her with five more children, which is pretty, pretty awesome. We don't know their names, but she's blessed. Now, Eli was very old and he kept learning that all his sons were doing to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So now it's even worse than it was before. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So you see that contrast? Here's Samuel. Here are Eli's sons. That last phrase, by the way, I'm going to give you a hint that uh, in stature and the favor with the Lord and also with man is almost verbatim about Jesus. After he's in the temple and he says, didn't you not know I was being my father's house? And then he submits to his parents, amazingly, which is Amazing right there. He submits to Mary and Joseph. And then it says, and he grew in favor with the Lord and with man. It's almost a direct translation into Greek. So Samuel is a type, a, a type of Christ. Christ ultimately fulfills this. But Samuel in his person kind of gives us a hint from that. And so when Luke writes uh, Luke 1 and 2, you think he probably has this in mind. He's making some connections. So that phrase is almost identical when we get into the Old Testament. So here's here's just some things here. So Samuel's faithfully serving, even giving liturgi liturgical garments sewn by his mother. <laughs> um, some of the open and public sins, look at this. They're desecrating the Lord's sacrifice, taking the choice portions reserved for God, fornication with the women outside the tent of meeting, and overall contempt for God's sacrificial system. Eli's rebuke, while genuine, is kind of weak. He's like, well, I'm hearing some bad stuff about you guys. Stop doing this. Doesn't really seem like a good disciplinarian, does he? Mm -hmm. He kind of lost him a long time ago, unfortunately. Okay. And then, of course, as I said before, Samuel is growing in grace and favor with language appropriated by Luke from both John the Baptist and Christ himself, who is, of course, the ultimate priest. And so it's kind of neat to see that contrast. Okay. And then the Lord sends somebody to reject Eli's household. Um, I'm going to end on this. We might have to pick up with three and more to, uh, next week, but I'm just going to end on this. And there came a man to God of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be an old there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That's talk about law. This is this is a law message from God. And it's not because he doesn't want it. Remember what his promise was even in this. The promise is, you're going to serve me forever. But they despise what God has given them. They've despised God's grace. And I'm going to kind of end on this. And then this is what he gives. This is the prophecy. And this shall come upon your two sons. Hophus and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. I want to highlight something from uh, for you here. Look at the promise here. What God is saying through this man of God to Eli, look what he says. I will raise it for myself a faithful priest, right? We've confessed that Jesus is the great high priest who advocates for us before the father. And then look at this, my anointed one forever. Whoever this is, is both priest and king. We talk about the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We're seeing these types already in 1 Samuel. With Samuel, we'll see it with David. Jesus embodies all these types in himself. So we're getting these little hints. So after Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus, and he opens up the scriptures to them, and they're on their way, and he's like, hey, look at all this. And he looks in the Old Testament. Do you see what he's pointing at, probably? Hey, didn't you see these themes? Look at 1 Samuel. The anointed one, the priest forever. I mean, look at all this stuff. This has been promised since the beginning. You know, and you can see him doing this. It's a cool, it's a cool moment. And that's why we look in this. We see these connections um, to Christ. All right. Anybody have any comments or questions? We should end now. I'm going to do three and then get into four through seven, hopefully next week. You can see how rich this is. So it takes a while to parse all this out. Let's go ahead and say the blessing on ourselves as you see Samuel and Eli. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.